The Hennessy Report from Keystone Partners, a free-flowing conversation with leaders in the HR community, talking about themselves, the industry, and their work. Brought to you in cooperation with NERA, the Northeast Human Resources Association. Welcome to the Hennessy Report by Keystone Partners. I'm Dave Hennessy, and today's guest is who CNBC calls the Oracle of Remote Work. His name is Darren Murph of GitLab. He has the title of head of remote at GitLab. They have thousands of employees, and they've never had a headquarters or offices. And it's the first company that is all remote to ever go public. He shares uh, their comprehensive library on remote work and talks about how they've pioneered org design how onboarding includes unlearning prior company behaviors and talks a lot about how they use meeting hygiene and how their values are a very public document that's always evolving. Really amazing organization and Darren's amazing himself. Next up on the podcast is Marcus Buckingham of ADP and now our conversation with Darren Murphy. Well, I'm with Darren Murph of GitLab here on the Hennessy Report. So glad to have you, Darren. Dave, thanks for having me. Well, we always start the Hennessy Report learning a little bit about our guests. So we're going to talk about GitLab and your interesting role. But first question, please share a moment from earlier in your life that as you look back on it now, it was an inflection point, informs who you become as a person, as a professional. I'm really grateful to my parents for instilling the love of travel in me at a very young age. So the moment that comes to mind is we took a road trip from North Carolina to Texas and my folks allowed me to invite my best friend along for the ride. And so as a young person that I was, I thought, oh, this is going to be great. About eight hours into the ride, I thought, wow, is this is this ever going to end? <laughs> and I remember actively thinking this was the worst choice I've ever made in my young life. <laughs> And then we arrived and we had the best time. And I have come to appreciate their insistence on travel being a part of our family culture. It proved to me that the world is bigger than my home state. It's bigger than my home country. It's bigger than my home continent. And I have had an insatiable desire to experience more cultures, to get to know more people, to ask them what I don't know ever since. And I know that came from their ability to see beyond the incessant pestering of are we there yet, recognizing <laughs> that going forward with that would show me some pretty amazing things that would shape who I would later become. That's great. I know you've become a, a, an avid traveler. I know you, you write and talk a lot about that in your life today. It's part of your work too. If you could share a little bit about GitLab, the business model, a history of the company, I know it hasn't been around that long, I think 2014. GitLab is the DevOps platform. We help companies make better software faster. GitLab was incorporated in 2014, as you mentioned, but it was incepted in 2011. So we just reached our 10-year milestone as a company, and it coincided with taking GitLab public, which was historic on a few levels. It was the first remote-only company to ever go public. That is incredible for the future. Congratulations. That's awesome. 
Thank you. That's an amazing milestone for the future of work. And also, we publicly live-streamed our end-to-end experience day at NASDAQ, which had never happened before. So where does GitLab stand now? We are 1,500 people in more than 65 countries, still no company-owned offices. So GitLab was incepted as an all-remote company. The first three employees were in three different countries, and they believed early on that by embracing distributed work, it would create significant advantages as the company scaled. Ten years later, it's easy to look back and think, wow, that was prophetic, of course. But if you remember 10 years ago, it wasn't so easy. There was a lot of skepticism on whether distributed work could really work at scale. And it has been amazing to be a small part of that journey. I'm so grateful for the team members that we have now, as well as the alumni that have shaped this and the, the wider community that have contributed so deeply to the GitLab product, as well as the culture. That's great. Uh, a little bit about the product. Can you give us an example of a customer solution? How does it work? I don't know much about DevOps software, but just give you give a little bit more vivid example of how it might solve a company problem or a business problem. Every company will become a software company, and GitLab is the DevOps solution as the iPhone was to telephonics. So if you dive into what it takes to actually make software, there are a lot of stages along the way. Most companies right now are using some form of DIY DevOps or bring your own DevOps. They're cobbling together a lot of tools and they're hoping that they all work together along the way. GitLab offers up the entire platform. And so we usually onboard new clients based on one or two elements that they're really passionate about And then we work to expand the stage use as they realize they can get lots of efficiency by using the entire platform. Great. Well, I came across you, Darren, from your CNBC interview with you and your CEO and the Harvard professor who's studying remote work and was so impressed with what you had to say in that interview. In fact, I think CNBC calls you the oracle of remote work. Is that true? (laughs) That is true. I'm humbled by that. I really appreciate it. It's a lot of responsibility, so I try to steward it well. (laughs) And I'm sure when you joined and took this role, you had no idea there'd be so many people from other organizations so interested to talk to you and learn all about how you do it at GitLab. How did you become head of remote work at GitLab? How did this unfold? I love this story. So a bit of context. I joined in July of 2019. So this was before the COVID-19 pandemic. GitLab was around 700 people at the time, and they had scaled to a point where they wanted to be more intentional about cementing great remote operations, evangelizing it both internally and externally, and hiring a dedicated leader to really sit at the nexus of workplace operations as well as strategic communications. So when I first heard of GitLab, realized they were officeless by design, I was immediately bought in because I had spent the better part of 15 years before GitLab working mostly in hybrid organizations. These companies were set up to thrive as an office-based environment, and those who weren't in the office were perpetually at some form of disadvantage. I know. You talk about that A-team, B-team concept, right? Exactly. You're you're on the B-team, you're not quite in the know, and for advancement and other things, right? Exactly. And so when I learned that GitLab only had one playing field, it was all remote, people could work from wherever they felt most comfortable. Of course, this does include offices. If you want to work at a WeWork or a Regis office, people do go into those from time to time. I thought it was phenomenal. I thought they were 10 to 20 years ahead of everyone else from an organizational design perspective and and couldn't wait to join. So I joined and quickly began documenting all of the amazing remote first ways of working that GitLab had already been doing, but maybe were 
less documented. And so I wanted to formalize that, put codification around that, taxonomy around that. Now, another thing you should know about GitLab is that we are an incredibly transparent organization. Our company handbook, which is essentially the operating manual to GitLab, is public to the world. And so when our employees read about remote onboarding or remote work during onboarding it's the same thing that you could read about or I, you know else. i was on there today preparing for our discussion i was surprised how much is available <laughs> and it was it was such a perfect opportunity for me to establish that and build what i believe is the world's most comprehensive library on remote work because it served two audiences in parallel it bolstered the gitlab onboarding process and made us more resilient. It made us more durable at being great at remote, but it also served as this amazing spotlight to the world on GitLab pioneering organizational design. I have a Guinness World Record in publishing, so this was perfect for me to embrace. So fast forward a few months, COVID hits, and now the entire world needs this blueprint that lo and behold, GitLab has already written. And so the past two years plus have been simply phenomenal to watch organizations and leaders all over the world look to GitLab to implement these practices within their own organizations and create their own transformational blueprints. What were some of the things when you first joined that you were surprised to find out made remote work so affected? Two big surprises for me. One, values are actually operational principles. Hmm. And the second one is there are a lot of implicit things, implied knowledge in a company that serve the company much better if converted to explicit. So I'll address those one at a time. The first one, when I viewed GitLab's values page, I saw six core values, words that you've heard before, things like collaboration, iteration, transparency. But underneath of those are sub-values, and these get very tactical. And I was blown away by being tactical enables you to be very prescriptive on how you act and how you serve other people and other clients. I'll give you an example, short toes. When I read that short toes was a sub-value of collaboration, it explicitly says that you can contribute feedback or input to anyone else's department. A legal person could give feedback to comms or marketing or design without needing any formal training in any of those. And you're expected to collaborate with short toes, as in you can't step on anyone's toes. Ah. This is incredible to me because it's more than something you value. It is literally how you treat people. And so for a lot of companies, I hope that they recognize great remote first principles involve getting explicit about what your values are. So speaking of explicit, it is amazing how much is implied knowledge in a co-located organization. Let's say that you're welcomed into a project group and you're hanging out with the same group of people in the same office for months on end. After four or five months, you may recognize, hmm, it seems like this group really collaborates with short toes. They invite feedback from other parts of the organization. I guess that's how it works here. But how much more efficient would it be if you just wrote that down and then converted it from implied to explicit and you gave it to people so that everyone had a uniform understanding. And that way, anyone across the world, different offices, different time zones, they all had the same acknowledgement, even if they weren't a part of that working group. So those were the two big aha moments to me that I thought remote teams have figured this out and the rest of the world's teams stand to gain a lot by learning how we're doing it. Yeah, I saw one of those values that reminds me of something very operational. Don't pull rank is one of the ones that you have. And I really, that resonated with me. You don't see that on every value statement. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I want to say that these values have evolved over time. So GitLab is 10 years old, but our values page is a living, breathing organism. And anyone in the world, not just our company, can contribute a proposal using GitLab, the product, to make it better. And Don't Pull Rank was one of those where there was a situation, I'm sure, somewhere along the way where maybe that happened or we thought, you know what, to preempt this from happening as we scale, maybe we should put something like that in. Perhaps someone joined the organization, they had seen it done before, and they wanted to put a sub-value in there to make sure that it, that it didn't happen. All of those are how the GitLab values have come to be. That's great. You mentioned different geographies and different time zones, and I think you said the three founders are from different countries. How do you manage remotely in different time zones, whether it's about meetings? And I, I hear this being a challenge for people. And how do you do it inside GitLab? The long and short of it is asynchronous workflows. I really do believe that the future of work will have more asynchronous work, which should leave time for more synchronous rapport and culture building. That's one of my predictions for the future. So what is asynchronous work? Asynchronous is moving a piece of work forward without someone else being available or online at the exact same time. And many people are pitting synchronous and asynchronous as enemies against one another, but I actually see them as two tools in a toolbox. And if you learn how to harness async when it's useful and sync when it's useful, you can create a really, really powerful team. So the only way to truly compensate for a global array of time zones is to implement an architecture, a, a way of working that doesn't require people to be online at the same time. That is de-risking the business. If all of your work requires everyone to be online at the exact same time, even if you have people in the same time zone, that doesn't account for real life or people going on vacation in different time zones, things like that. Async actually gets easier at scale. It's really difficult for companies up front because hiring that first person eight or 12 hours away is really painful. You have to really change your organizational behaviors. But once you're in 65 countries and you have people all over the world, suddenly it becomes an advantage. You have people in such a diverse array of time zones, it actually becomes a forcing function to get better at asynchronous work because it creates more efficiencies enabling you to work around the clock instead of having to maintain a rigid schedule just because that's when everyone else is online. Do you consider your function head of remote work as a human resources people strategy function? It's the most cross-functional role in the company. It uniquely sits at the nexus of people operations and strategic communications. And what's interesting about this role as it has emerged in other companies is that I've seen it sit almost everywhere. At Dropbox, it sits within the design department. They look at people design the same way they look at product design, which is mm. fascinating. At Vista and Simpress, it sits within communications because there's so much of this that has to be communicated out. Remember, policies without purpose, it's just a mandate. It's really hard to get thousands of people to create tailwinds for something if it's just one mandate after another. So it has to be rooted in strategic communications for people to actually buy into it and see the vision and see the future. You're asking people to change a lot. They need to know why. This is a nascent role. We're learning where it should sit. And mm -hmm. I think each organization is at a different place of remote fluency. So they may need that strategic leader in different positions based on where they're at on their journey. So it depends. <laughs> it depends. And I would take that as a, 
a really liberating answer. I wouldn't sweat too much about where it is. Just make sure that you give this person, if you do hire them, a lot of influence and power and authority because this really does need to be a top-down type of change. Executive sponsorship and modeling is vital for this amount of transformation to work. So number one, make sure the execs are on board. Make sure that if you open your offices back up, the execs aren't the first one back in. They will set the tone. Right. So what has GitLab learned in the last couple of years, maybe even during the pandemic? And what are some of the new things that you've implemented or that you've developed to make remote work even more effective for a growing organization? Because you're scaling now, even since you've joined, the organization's more than doubled. First thing we've learned is that getting together in person really, really, really matters. And a lot of people are surprised by this. Like, wow, an all-remote company actually values in person? Absolutely. In fact, I would argue that we have one of the strongest, most intentional in-person strategies. And that's because it doesn't happen by default. You can't just take it for granted that people are going to run into each other. So you have to be very intentional about setting up annual retreats or maybe quarterly retreats for smaller sub-teams. Whatever it is for your company, make sure that you're very intentional about when and how you get people together. And remember, don't overload their time with work and strategy sessions. That can mostly be done virtually. What is harder to replicate is breaking bread with people, getting to know them, building culture, building rapport. I know that sounds a bit paradoxical. You're going to spend all of this money to get people together to mostly hang out, but that's what they don't normally get in a remote setting. So make sure that you uh, enable and empower that. The second thing, it's really easy to overwork at remote work. I forget exactly where I heard this, but there's an inflection point or there can be where you stop working from home and start living from work. And if your entire organization feels like they're living from work, that's not great for the long-term sustainability. So one of the things that GitLab implemented during the pandemic was family and friends days. We have a sub-value that says family and friends first, work second, and we mean it. And we wanted this day to really reinforce that. A Friday a month, the whole company shuts down, and we stood up a Slack channel, Family and Friends Day, where we encouraged people to share photos and videos and stories of what they were doing on that day, even if it was just resting or hanging out in a hammock, to visibly reinforce to our global team that we're doing something other than work. Make sure that you take care of yourself. You mentioned Slack, and I know you have an interesting policy with Slack. Do you have messages that disappear after a certain period of time? Can you talk a little about your approach with Slack? Sure. We have an entire section of our handbook devoted to remote-first forcing functions. And I like these because they serve as guardrails to make sure that you're not just going with the corporation's flow or the bureaucratic flow or the way things have always been done. Remember, the most dangerous words in business are we've always done it that way. (laughs) So in an all remote company, you have to have forcing functions that remind you to not just always do it that way. The 90-day retention policy in Slack is one of these functions. GitLab expires all Slack messages after 90 days, and it has two very important purposes. The first is that it forces people not to do work in Slack. We instead want people to do work within the GitLab platform. We believe that it's more collaborative, more transparent, easier to find, easier to search, and it creates a single source of truth where all work happens. So you're using your own software to manage the business. Correct. Across the entire organization, we use GitLab. That's where we plan our OKRs, our goals, our objectives. We look at survey results. We build a tool that is the foundational underpinning of how we operate. Hmm. 
So I guess you know <laughs> what your customers need because you can see where the opportunities are to make it better and more effective and all those things. That's great. Absolutely. You also talk about meeting hygiene. And I love that phrase. Can you tell us all what you mean by that and how you maintain good hygiene in meetings? Because we all know they can all be, most companies, they can be a lot better. Meeting hygiene is important because it forces you to think about the rules around meetings. You don't want meetings to be a free-for-all. So meeting hygiene, writing down what you expect in meetings so that you convert implicit to explicit. One of the greatest things I read in onboarding was, it's okay to look away. We write down that if you're in a 50-minute meeting and only 10 minutes of it is relevant to you, it's totally okay to just go on mute and do other work or check Facebook or call your parents. It's not offensive. It is us empowering you to be a manager of your own time and attention. We hire for this leadership principle called manager of one, and this is one of the components of it. But it is so empowering to have that written down because if someone's in your meeting and they're looking away, you just remember, ah, they're managing their day and their time and attention, and they would offer me that same courtesy if I were in their meeting. But the other thing here is you want to make meetings harder to have. A chief people officer once asked me, how do we make meetings better? And I said, no, 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 you want to make them harder to have. <laughs> she kind of stewed on it for a bit. What I mean by that is you want to write down, does this need to be a meeting? This can be a simple flowchart. Can this be done asynchronously? Yes. If so, you probably shouldn't have a meeting. And if you are going to have a meeting, make sure that there is a shared agenda attached to the invite so that people see what the context is, they see who is going to be invited, and if they recognize that that time doesn't work well for them, they could still contribute to that shared doc, even if they can't attend live. Small tweaks go a long way in creating a much better meeting hygiene. I interviewed one other guest on the podcast, uh, Bob Glazer, who's the founder CEO of Acceleration Partners. He's always been in a remote company too. He's the what he said is, and I think you say the same thing, don't go to all remote to save on real estate. This is not the thing. He says, in fact, we spend more money bringing people together physically than we would in having a headquarters. And I just want to get your reaction to that. I would argue that saving money should not be a primary concern of building a more resilient company and business. If you happen to save a bit of money here and there, you should reinvest it in getting people together. You should reinvest it in auditing for new tools and new technologies and new ways of working. You should reinvest it by strengthening your learning and development team so that you can upskill people in tasks like great business writing with high degrees of precision. Not everyone knows how to do this. In a remote setting, you may need to teach them how to do this. There's a ton of opportunity to reinvest in the business. And it's not about location. So much as the global narrative is fixated on return to office and where people work, the truth is in 10 years, we'll look back and recognize that the remote revolution was actually about how people work and way less about where people work. What are employees, new employees surprised about when they come and join GitLab? The biggest thing we hear back is how refreshing and shocking it is that we truly embrace things like no ego and blameless problem solving and short toes. It's a lot less to do with the location, to be honest, and much more about how we work. So much so that we actually call some of this unlearning. During onboarding, we really <laughs> reinforce 
that if you've had any kind of moments in the past or any kind of baggage that you may be bringing along, we reinforce that this truly is not a trap. A great example of this is sharing things in draft. We have this value of iteration, and it is by far the hardest to believe and to practice, which essentially says we want you to share the smallest figment of an idea as early as possible to get feedback from as many people as possible so that you don't go off in some direction in a silo only to look up six months later and realize you could have really benefited from feedback five and a half months ago. It is incredibly difficult for most people who have been praised and promoted based on perceived polish to actually believe that a one-line GitLab issue just to start a conversation is actually the right thing to do. It's what we actually want. And everyone has an epiphany early on where someone they didn't even think of gives them this amazing nugget of wisdom that helps shape their project. Then they become a believer. But it takes a leap of faith early on. Darren, you do a lot of sharing with the community about what you're doing with regard to your values and your handbook and how you manage remote work effectively in, in your role. And I was wondering just your philosophy about doing that. It takes a lot of your time. A little bit about your motivation and really sharing so much about what you're you're doing. It's a good mixture of corporate motivation and personal motivation. GitLab's mission is that everyone can contribute. And we're an open core company. If you pay attention to our product release roadmap, you'll notice that a lot of GitLab product features actually started in the wider community. They were contributed by people that don't even work at or on GitLab full time. And we want to do the same thing with organizational design. We want to share this openly so that we can learn from other companies and that we can influence people and empower people and elevate people so that they too can contribute. And the company fundamentally believes that with more remote opportunity comes more people who can contribute. You are simply beholden to much less. When you don't have the rigidity of a commute, for example, you're much more empowered to contribute to your own life, to your family, to your community, to your workplace. It's all connected. For me personally, why does this matter? Well, I learned early on that remote work was life's greatest cheat code. I was able to see 50 countries and all 50 U.S. states and over 50 national parks in the span of about 10 years, all while working remotely and actually earning a Guinness World Record. That's when the aha moment went off <laughs> There's a Guinness World Record for blog posts, right? Is that Correct. Right? So I'm the yeah. world's most prolific professional blogger. So if you've ever read about technology on a site called Engadget, you've probably stumbled across my name there. <laughs> but more recently, my wife and I were able to adopt a newborn at birth, and we have an open adoption. It is an extraordinary way to grow your family. And when I look back at the process, I think it was fairly seamless. It wasn't wrought with friction. And a lot of that was because of the flexibility of remote work. When you're going through the fostering or adopting journey, you need a lot of flexibility. But if you have it, it's actually pretty enjoyable and amazing. And now that I'm such an advocate for adoption, I think with tens of millions of people going remote out of after COVID, if they felt called to foster or adopt, but they weren't able to because of the rigidity of their commute, what happens if they use that recaptured time to go after that? That is amazing from a societal standpoint. And there are lots of other elements like these, crises like these, that I believe that society has an amazing opportunity to really embrace when we stop wasting time commuting and we really get galvanized and pointed in the direction of what matters to us. From an employer standpoint, this is a huge opportunity to build loyalty, to build community in ways that we've never, we've never really had before. 
I mean, you think about all the hours wasted in, on commuting time, right? Like I think you said, you used to commute an hour and a half each way. You're hearing from lots of companies. What are some of the things that you're seeing companies do with regard to remote work? And a lot of companies are kind of halfway in between, right? And, and many companies are fully remote but plan to go back. What are some of the uh, pitfalls that you've seen companies get into with remote work? Biggest pitfall is that in-between moment that you've mentioned. And my good friend Paul McKinley at Vista termed this shybrid. So being shy about actually committing to what the future is going to be. And I absolutely love this term because so many companies are in this weird in-between void where they're not committing one way or the other. And it is actively damaging their employee experience. It's And it's also thwarting their ability to use this precious time to reinvent themselves and get better prepared for the future. There is no putting this genie back in the bottle. The best, most progressive employers going forward will embrace and empower flexible work. And 10 years from now, we'll look back at this and think, why were we fighting so hard for the fax machine of work? So that's the biggest pitfall. Is Shy not, I like that. That's good. <laughs> the biggest pitfall is not committing. The second biggest pitfall is underestimating how significant this change is. I really, truly advocate for employers hiring a dedicated remote leader or repurposing someone on your team that is passionate about this to drive this change full time. It is not as simple as just letting people work from home and assuming that everything else will work itself out. People need new ways of working. People need to learn how to be an interior designer if they're going to design their workspace. And the third biggest pitfall is this notion that hybrid, or at least as how most companies define hybrid, is the best of both worlds. The truth is, without great intentionality, hybrid becomes the worst of both worlds because some people have more access to more information and praise and promotion than others. We mentioned earlier the team A and team B experience. Hmm. And if you don't have someone full-time dedicated to equalizing those playing fields as much as possible, the people who go in the office will likely default to old ways of working. For example, collaborating on a whiteboard with no connection to the internet, therefore invisible to the rest of the company. Those types of things may seem small and insignificant in a silo, but at scale, they cause a lot of dysfunction across what is now two teams. Are there any companies or people that you've collaborated with where you've you just mentioned Shybrid from Vistaprint, Cypress? Are there any others that you've learned something from practices out there that you, you hear that are really working that maybe don't come from GitLab? Dropbox, early in the pandemic, made a concerted effort to go virtual first, and I applaud them for living this transformation out in public. So if you want more insights on this, Google Dropbox Virtual First Toolkit. Alastair mm -hmm. Simpson and his team have done an amazing job there. I read that Virtual First Toolkit, and there's an element in there imposing async when it feels uncomfortable. And they had a simple section in there with copy and pastable regrets on declining a meeting in favor of async. And this removes the political awkwardness of the intern sending a regret to the CEO and saying, I would rather not do this in a meeting. Could we do it through an asynchronous workflow? And I thought it was brilliant because it's simply copy and pasteable. It normalizes this conversation in your company. So of course I borrowed that, I put it in the <laughs> GitLab handbook and I cited and linked over to Dropbox and I, I thank them to this day for making our handbook better. Now we have copy and pasteable regrets on declining meetings, which I think is phenomenal. 
And there's a load of companies also that shared insights on Remote by GitLab. We had a symposium earlier this year. If you Google Remote by GitLab, to no surprise, you'll find every single session is available on YouTube. We recorded that so that people can watch it asynchronously long after the actual live event. You mentioned you have to deprogram some people that come in from other organizations, in particular leaders. What are some of the practices for leaders in a remote work environment? How is it different? What do you have to make sure they do and practice inside your organization to be effective? The first thing is to really challenge your preconceived notions. I've heard a lot of leaders say, getting together and whiteboarding and innovating in person, there's just nothing that beats that. But they're stuck in this fear-based, scarcity-based mindset, which is, well, you assume that no one is ever going to invent technology to ever make it better. So the truth is you have to have an opportunistic mindset, a growth mindset, and ask yourself, what tools have popped up in the last year and a half that were invented specifically for distributed collaboration now that there is amazing product market fit for this? So it's kind of shaking those confines of assuming that the past has always and always will be the best. That's not necessarily the case. The second is thinking of yourself less as a director and more of an unblocker. Great remote managers actively see themselves as unblockers. In other words, you create a psychologically safe atmosphere where all of your direct reports can come to you with context on an issue where they're blocked. And then you attempt to unblock them as fast as possible so that they can go and run as fast as possible. Now, where this stems from is high output management. This is a famous book. And in one of these sections, creating managerial leverage is deeply talked about. And in a remote setting, you really have to look at yourself as an unblocker if you want to create high amounts of leverage for the people that work from you. It's not about micromanagement. Management. It's not about checking in. It's not about seeing how many keystrokes. It's about being the manager that says, come to me with anything and I'll work really hard to unblock you so that you can create a lot of leverage in your role. That's great. As you might know, we produced this podcast at Keystone Cooperation with NERA, which is the Northeast Human Resources Association. It's the largest SHRM chapter in the Northeast. It's kind of like T-SHRM in your neighborhood down in Raleigh, Durham. We always have the NERA question of the podcast. And my question is, if you're an HR leader and you're probably in some way delivering remote work or overseeing remote work, what are some of the steps you'd have them take? They've been through this for you know two years now. If they're looking to go to the next level, are there any things you'd recommend they do first, second, third? So I see it as a two-step process. The one is a gigantic leap of faith that remote first is the future. And the second is a series of baby steps and iterations. So take the first step so that people know what the future is going to look like. And the second step is commit to acknowledging that you don't know what that future is going to look like. The truth is we're all building this in real time. This is a seismic shift. This is an amazing revolution. This is history being written in real time. It's okay that you don't know all the answers. But this commitment to iteration is so critical for leaders because it allows you to experiment. GitLab has a sub-value called two-way doors. Run through as many two-way doors as you possibly can. And more things are two-way doors than you probably think. Hey, what's the or, concept there? Meaning you can get back if you have? Exactly. If it doesn't go well? Exactly. It's not the end <laughs> of the world. Look, let's say that you are having a lot of Zoom fatigue in your team. And you think, well, what's an iterative way to address that? Well, let's see if we can reduce recurring meetings by 25% over the next quarter. Now, some people may hear that and think, well, you can't possibly do that. That's way too disruptive. But the truth is, 
it's a two-way door. You could reduce those meetings by 25%. And at the end of the quarter, you have a retrospective and say, what did we learn? Did we like what we found on the other side of that door? If you didn't, you can actually walk back through the door having learned something new and walk through another door where you continue this process ah, of learning. It's good. going to require a lot of iteration. It's too significant a change to just rip everything out and replace it. In the GitLab Remote Playbook, we try to walk companies through this while painting the vision of what Utopia does look like with the understanding that for some, it will take a little bit longer to get to. Right, they could take pieces of it. So go to the playbook, excellent. Is there anything else I haven't asked you, Darren, that you'd like our audience to know? The biggest thing is that in the past two years, mm -hmm. no one has experienced remote work. What I mean by that is what we have experienced is COVID-induced or pandemic-induced work from home or worse, work from quarantine. The only semblance to remote work is the loss of the commute. For organizations who have pressed the copy button from their office workflows and pasted it hurriedly into their virtual environment, you're not really experiencing all the spoils and all the joys of remote work. And so don't let the past two years color what you think remote work can be. A lot of companies and a lot of HR leaders are wrestling with mental health issues with their employees. And I'm just wondering if you have any comment about that, how you've addressed it. The key thing to realize here is that burnout cannot be solved by meditation and yoga. Burnout is not an individual problem. It is a system problem. And burnout and mental wellness, burnout at scale, I should say, should really make leaders think, what are we systematically doing to solve this? It's not about throwing darts at a dartboard, offering a few more yoga sessions. There's nothing wrong with that. But just be very intentional about evaluating the systems that are in place. If people have systemic Zoom fatigue, for example, is it because they can't control their own calendars or is it because the organization has not given them a legitimate alternative to get work done? These are the kinds of questions you really need to ask that are really, really vital to making sure that you have a sustainable team long term. Thank you very much. All right. We have some uh, off the study questions here. If you could write a letter of career professional advice to your 25-year-old self, what would you write? Dear Darren. Dear Darren, don't give up pushing the remote work boulder up a mountain because <laughs> at some point you will get to the top of the mountain and it will be barreling down the other side. And I feel like we've reached that point. And it's been amazing to see the global appetite for learning more about more inclusive ways of work, more flexible ways of working. So I'm really thankful for the perseverance. So if you're listening to this and you really have great conviction about something you're doing, don't give up. It will pay off eventually. What's something you hope to not leave undone 10 years from now, something you hope not to regret? I hope that I've done everything I possibly can to be an advocate for adoption and especially open adoption. It has transformed our life so significantly and the more that you travel, the greater you see that there's needs everywhere. And I hope that I've done what I can to make people more introspective and, and ask themselves, how do I contribute to, to solving that? Uh, one less is what I always aim for. One less child without a home, one less birth mother without a family. Uh, we can do it one heart at a time. That's great. All right. Bonus question. What's something interesting about you? Although we found a lot of interesting things about you already. But what's something interesting about you that we won't find on your LinkedIn profile or your executive bio? 
I'm a million miler on Delta Airlines. I fell in love with Delta a long time ago. They have been amazing. Uh, and I just crossed the 1.2 million miles mark. It has slowed down a bit during COVID, but we're still doing what we can. And so I'm hoping to hit 2 million. I already have a Sky Miles account for our three-year-old. He's already working toward his own million. So thank you, Delta, for those that are listening, for getting me all around the world so many times. And I look forward to the journeys ahead. That's funny. Well, I got one last question for you. Do you have a secret life hack? I think the biggest piece of advice I would give here is assume that you can learn something from everyone. I have found the term, what do I not know? to be really powerful as a leader. Walk into every life experience and just be open about saying, what do I not know? What am I not taking into account? Or what are what am I assuming that I don't need to assume anymore? And if you have that growth and learning mindset, you'll surprise yourself a lot, but you also become really vulnerable and people respond really well to that. So don't stop asking, what do I not know? Well, that's a great answer to the question. A good way to wrap up our podcast too, because we know a lot more now because we were able to hear from you, Darren. Thank you so much for being a guest on the Hennessy Report. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. Godspeed all. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Hennessy Report from Keystone Partners. Be sure to subscribe to listen to all of our conversations with leaders in HR. Go to keystonepartners.com and click on the podcast button.